this is gonna be great. We'll be one big happy family. Let me show you around. Here's your bed, Smelly. Here's your food bowl. And some kibble. You can live here forever and ever. <laughs> oh, look, Pat. He's crying tears of joy. Well, Smelly, there's one more family member you haven't met. Cue the intro! Welcome aboard to the only podcast that believes that the only way to defeat the thing from another world is a little bit of Kelpie G. I'm ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. I'm your captain, Captain Eric, and it's a pleasure to have you here as we continue our sail through the fourth season of SpongeBob SquarePants. Today's episode is The Thing, a 1982 film directed by the one and only John Carpenter, Based off of an earlier film, The Thing from Another World, Carpenter's film is one of the most spine-tingling, edge-of-your-seat horror experiences you could ever hope to ask for with a creature so disgustingly monstrous that even one of the monsters in the darkest trenches of the ocean would run in terror. The Alaskan bullworm would not want to mess with The Thing. It is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I am so happy to be talking about it today. What was that? The, oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I got it. Yeah. Okay. No, it's all right. I got it. Today's episode is The Thing, the first half of the 76th episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. It first premiered in the United States on January 15th, 2007. It was storyboard directed by Zeus Service and Eric Weiss, although if you are watching any episode with Zeus in, in terms of working on that episode, it is fair for you to yell at the television, Zeus, in a moment's notice. Zoo Service, Eric Weiss, wrote this episode alongside Stephen Banks. Our animation director is Andrew Overtoom. Our technical director is Vincent Waller. And our supervising producer is Paul Tibbet. I'm back, baby. Even though we won't really be touching upon John Carpenter's The Thing for this episode, we are still going to be touching upon the aspects and elements of horror that have been injected into this episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. There are still elements of body horror, elements of monsters showing up out of nowhere. And it shouldn't be a surprise for those working behind the scenes on this episode due to the history that they have involving some elements of horror, some aspects of that genre into the world of SpongeBob SquarePants. As far back as introducing... Squidward to the realm of sci-fi horror and SB-129 all the way to the worlds of sci-fi body horror in Squid Bob tentacle pants. Even in a recent episode, Ghost Host, which had a myriad of elements from that genre, you can tell that the individuals of Eric Weiss and Zeus Service Zeus have brought their love of the horror genre, I have to imagine that there's some elements that they are intrigued by 
bringing into these episodes, especially during season four, where it seems that a lot of these elements have fruitioned to the surface, the thing being one of them. As this episode starts out, I have to say that this is up there in one of the most mismatched title card slash music choices I think we've ever had. If you look at this title card on its own, without any music, it's up there as one of the most horrifying Spongebob title cards we have ever had. Ones that you know instantly, ooh, this is going to be possibly a spooky episode of some sort. But when you get to the music choice, it couldn't be further from that. Little coffee break there. Um, <laughs> little uncut moment. I'm not going to cut that out. So the music choice, very whimsical, very SpongeBob SquarePants. If you were in another room and SpongeBob was playing and you heard the theme song and then the beginning of this episode started, you would not think that this would be an episode about anything horrific, anything to do with torture or, or anything of that sort. But maybe that's what they were going for. This is the, the fooling element. They want to fool parents into thinking everything's a-okay. False sense of security. But for those looking at that title card, nope, you're in for a ride. And as we start out, this may be one of my favorite cold openings of SpongeBob SquarePants. Very quiet. Very simple. It's late in the day. And Squidward is clearly skeptical at, at this point as he hasn't really heard of Spongebob and Patrick seemingly all day. One eye pokes out from his door, peeks over at the rock, and we just get the sound of wind hitting that little weather vane that he has on the top of his rock. It's very subtle. I would say at no point in the series up to this episode have we had a moment of silence like this on Con Street. Like, an actual moment of genuine silence. We've had, of course, times where we set in on the street and there isn't any immediate laughter of SpongeBob and Patrick, but this is made very clear that this is different. So the eye peeks over to Patrick's rock. No sound, just the wind. Peeks over at the pineapple. Nothing. There's no sounds coming from it. Squidward then slithers his way behind the pineapple, sneaking to be a peeping squid through the window to look into an empty pineapple. As we're told, this is evening time, which means SpongeBob and Patrick seemingly have been gone all day, or at least this is the first time that it's been quiet, so Squidward is just double-checking. And his excitement explodes at this moment in time, realizing that if these two are gone for the evening, he gets a free evening to himself. I guess, according to this moment, to Squidward, evenings are the absolute worst for him trying to do anything, get anything done. I guess that's the time that SpongeBob and Patrick are at their most active. I guess that makes sense, at least with SpongeBob's possible schedule here. If he works at the Krusty Krab, let's say, in the morning, or he goes to Mrs. Puff's boating school in the immediate morning, goes to work, he's probably out by evening time. So then that's his playtime with Patrick. They're outside, annoying 
Squidward to no end. But according to this episode, they're gone. They're nowhere to be found. Squidward has the evening free. And what better way to spend an evening than with a box of grape juice? I thought Squidward would be a little bit more elegant than that, but who am I to judge? And some public television, which I don't want to down public television. I think it it hosts a great service wherever it is. But I have, I've never met or I've never witnessed anyone give the excitement to watch public television as much as Squidward is in this episode. He's hyping it up absolutely hard. And there is great programming to be found on public television. Do not get me wrong. I support it. But it seems like Squidward is at that elite level of support of public television. And I'm sure those people exist in silence due to the donations that they may make to various public uh, organizations around the country, around the world. So, but I don't know. At this moment, when I first watched that episode, I remember thinking, wow, Squidward is the first person, the first character that I have ever had in front of me give so much emphasis on, no, this is public television time. Even my grandmother watched a decent amount of public television when I was growing up, but there was never any excitement behind it. You know, if she ran into the room and was like Macho Man Randy Savage or Hulk Hogan and cut a promo on wanting to watch public television, man, I would be right next to my grandmother's chair watching along with her no matter what was on. She'd just have to hype it up a little bit. That's all I'm saying is there was never any hype behind it. It's not like my grandmother had a deep enough voice where she could run into a room and go, Listen, dude, you gotta watch public television, brother. That wasn't going to happen. I mean, if that happened, like I said, I'd be right next to her watching, eyes glued to the screen, because I genuinely, if my grandmother was, um, if she showed any enjoyment of something, then I wanted to enjoy that with her, you know? But if she just was kind of blank to whatever she was watching, it was just kind of, the mindless television, which she would only would do in the evening time. So I guess that matches up with Squidward. Pretty one-to-one there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't rem- if If she ever really showed enjoyment, which I'll tell you one, the Grand Old Opry was one of those shows that she genuinely showed excitement for. So I would watch along with her. And, you know, depending on the musical act, I would like what I was watching. But if she was enjoying it, I was enjoying it. And that was the whole point. So, yeah, Squidward shows all this excitement for public television. I can understand why after seeing what's on the TV. For those that don't know, we have musical talent beyond your wildest dreams entering your world in this episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. I'm talking about the iconic Kelpie G, a character within SpongeBob who has no name at this point, He is not named in this episode, but later on is given the name Kelpie G, which is a play on jazz musician Kenny G, who is known, one of his iconic parts about him, other than his music, is his long flowing locks of hair. Now, Kelpie G, on top of that, looks a lot like Gallagher, if I'm not mistaken, And 
this is a crazy little boomerang roundabout way through I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast history. I don't get to do this often, but to reference back in the Squirrel Jokes episode, one of the bits of trivia is that uh, Dougie there, the opening comedian of the show, just kind of getting to the bit of throwing the pies at the crowd, was a reference to Gallagher, the comedian, who, although had wonderful bits of vocal comedy in his early days, was primarily known for his ending act of smashing watermelons into the crowd. So if you were in the first few rows, you would genuinely either wear uh, ponchos or white t-shirts to get all of this gunk on you. And that was that was his grand act. I mean, even up to the the moment he passed away, Gallagher is no longer with us. Rest in peace. He was known for smashing those fruit. I don't know if he really accepted it. I, I know he embraced it at some points in his life of, of truly being known for that, but seems kind of like a bitter comedian. Other than that, though, his iconic look of long locks of hair and an iconic mustache, just like Kelpie G, who also adorns a sweater that I would say reminds me more of Gallagher than Kenny G. So I think it's an amalgam of the two here, but although he doesn't have a name, you can still understand this is a squid of great musical talent that Squidward, you don't even have to know who this guy is. Just knowing who Squidward is and his aspirations of being a musician, he probably enjoys watching other musicians. And we don't get to hear about these other musicians very often. So after seeing what Squidward was into watching, I kind of felt good for the guy in this moment in time. Even though his excitement of public television was off the charts, I appreciate that. I appreciate Kelpie G. And I appreciate Squidward gets to enjoy his evening off. <laughs> Finally! Almost on schedule, SpongeBob and Patrick are already starting their shenanigans outside in something that genuinely made me laugh. Whoever came up with this idea, this is such a genius idea for SpongeBob and Patrick to annoy Squidward, but for what they're just doing, it feels so innocently childish and creative. It's something that you can genuinely imagine SpongeBob and Patrick doing and finding enjoyment out of, and it's not so out of the realm of possibilities as far as SpongeBob and his ever-growing powers of creativity. SpongeBob takes up a glob of sand and eats it while then pushing it out of his pores, out of his holes, if you will, as if he's a Play-Doh machine causing the globs of sand to then pop out right out of his pores onto the ground, causing Patrick to just laugh uncontrollably. And I genuinely laughed at this. I was sitting there, and it was a genuine moment of laughter. And it's those moments that I, I love having time and time again. If I don't watch this episode for a long period of time, I'm guaranteed to laugh again at that moment. Guaranteed. It's just, it reminds me of how much I love SpongeBob for what he gives me. It reminds me as far as what this character gives out to the world. And then, 
It's just the silliness. It's the why. Why do you like this character so much? Just watch this little bit of enjoyment of these two creatures having fun with the world around them. What's not to love? I know love can be hard to find these days, but come on now. This is just fun. Squidward is so annoyed at the laughter. He can't enjoy what he's watching. I know how this feels, and I'm sure those of you have been in situations where you're in a uh, public movie theater, and if someone is talking or there's something distracting going on, I guess either if the movie is not good enough or your attention span cannot concentrate enough with whatever distraction is going on for whatever reason, but you can find yourself in a Squidward-like mindset where you're just stewing there. You're trying to watch whatever you're watching, but something else is going on, and you can't, you can't focus on the first thing. So all of this laughter is going on, and eventually SpongeBob and Patrick make their way to Squidward's door, making their way into Squidward's house, and it's better to just, you know what, try to contain the chaos within a controllable environment instead of having it outside. I empathize with Squidward in this situation. I empathize with Squidward a lot here. Maybe it's my age. I don't know. If that's anything to go by, then eventually everybody will find themselves empathizing with Squidward at some point in their lives. But he invites SpongeBob and Patrick to sit down with him, gives them juice boxes as well. What a fantastic host Squidward is, and lets them enjoy some of the Kelpie G jazz while Spongebob or Patrick asks for the volume up, which although Squidward seems a little annoyed by the request, has to, at some deep-down feeling, be impressed with Patrick, like, oh, he's enjoying this, or wants to hear a little bit more of it. All right, fine. Volume up on the Kelpie G. As soon as the volume is up, of course, Spongebob comes in with the old, hey, Squidward, could you put the volume down? Which, I feel like I've been there before, where you put the volume up just ever so slightly for someone else, and maybe somebody else is like, whoa, that's a little too high, and you got to find that sweet spot for everybody. It can be a rough place if you have a home theater system with all of those speakers, then sometimes just one click too high or too low is just putting everybody off in the in the room. But Squidward obliges. And then is just getting bombarded with questions about Kelpie G, what they're watching, why is there so emotion going on on the television. He's annoyed. And he expresses his frustration on the fact that he just wanted to watch some public television during this evening. But you know what? You guys can enjoy this yourselves. I'm out of here. He didn't say that last part. That's, that's all me. But, um... Squidward is such a good host that he actually allows these two to stay in the Tiki Island head while he just goes for a bike ride. Which is just another part of Squidward that I... My heart goes, ah, I've been there. Not that I've escaped from a party to go on a bike ride, but the idea of a bike ride being a moment of, of calmness, a moment of peace to get out that frustration... When I was younger, I had this fantastic mountain bike, this orange Schwinn 
mountain bike with white decals all around it. It was an absolutely wonderful bike that I rode around everywhere. Everywhere. I crossed from town to town on that bike. I went places that when I tell people who I'm around now, if I tell them stories of of when I was younger and where I would ride my bike, their eyes widen at some of the places that I would ride my bike to. It was an absolutely fantastic bike. I learned how to bunny hop on that bike, ride with no hands on my handlebars, um, would do tricks at the at the skate park. Eventually, the front tire uh, popped, and I had to get that replaced. And what had happened was, to pump up that tire, I didn't really have a bike pump with me at my house. So I got up extremely early before school to walk my bike to the nearest gas station, which had an air pump. Pumped up the tire, and on my way back to school, very close to my house, actually, my tire popped again. So instead of going back to my house, because at this point I was a little bit late to school, and I honestly didn't want to deal with the frustrations of my mom complaining about that, so I ducked through the woods near our house, and at one of my best friend's house, Billy, I left my bike in his driveway. Where Billy is, he's at a dead end right near those other parts of the woods, a very secluded home. And at some point during my school day, that bike was stolen, and I've never seen it again. A few years ago, I would have another Schwinn in my life, but the feeling of that bike was completely off. I only rode it maybe two or three times, and I haven't had a bike since. But there was a chunk of my life where riding a bike, and this was at a time where MP3 players were just on the horizon, so they were extremely expensive. So I learned how to ride my bike holding a CD player. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine riding around? It's essentially one-handed on the the bike while you're, you know, holding a CD player, which you can't really rock around some of them, some of those early ones. Eventually, I would get myself an iPod, and that would make things a lot easier, and then an iPod holder, but then, you know, there's still complications with the headphones and whatnot. It was a time. It was a time to be alive. Certainly, wireless headphones and a phone with that attached and YouTube music, Spotify... That would be a lot easier. By the way, both of those, Spotify and YouTube now, have a podcast section, which has all of my episodes of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast, and This Week in Nickelodeon History, now as selectable podcasts if you listen on YouTube Music. So you can find more ways to listen to Captain Eric than ever before. YouTube. Spotify now has all of the video versions of these episodes. If you are inclined to look at some sort of picture on the screen, it is your choice to do so. But either way, if I had that technology at the time, man, that would be a lot easier. I wouldn't have fallen off the bike so many times or had the headphones yanked off, but those are all in the past. Those are memories I enjoy. But seeing Squidward here decide, you know what, you guys enjoy this TV, I'm out of here, getting on his bike... I empathize with that in some way. Squidward is such a nice guy to just let them stay in his house instead of kicking them out. 
And as he's complaining to himself that these two are going to enjoy public television, how dare they enjoy public television on my TV? They wouldn't know culture if it hit them like a truck full of cement. And almost on cue, as Squidward can conjure up these things, he runs right into a truck. And wouldn't you know it, it's filled with cement. Uh, At least it's not cement that is pouring into chocolate, like in that one episode of Doug at the Mr. Swirly Chocolate Factory. I want to make an entire video essay about that episode, how a truck with a trough like that of cement could just be pouring into a vat of chocolate and no one knows. That's that's insane, but there's just this random truck on the road. Squidward runs into it. Luckily, he doesn't really have to swallow any of this cement, and it just coats him in this mound of this wet cement, hurling him down a hill, twirling him through a pipe which is very clearly a sewer pipe of some sort. It looks disgusting. So then all this wet cement gets mixed up in this sewage water. And out the other side, we have this stinky cement squidward mixture getting flown into this valley within jellyfish fields. Where, you know, at one point we were told that the blue jellyfish, Old Blue, Old No Name, was one of a kind. He was a rarity to be had. He was like the Mew of the Kanto region. But it looks like since then, Old Blue got a little old busy, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Squidward gets thrown into this... Uh, this valley of jellyfish. They look like a river in this valley of of grass and just gets doused in electricity. I hope the cement is protecting him in some way, given that it's wet. But wait, nope, that would make things worse. Electricity can uh, conduct through liquid. So yeah, Squidward is feeling all of that shock, but that shock sends him directly out of that little crevice And we next see him walking as the cement finally hardens over on top of itself. And all of a sudden, Squidward is in no ability to actually walk. And from here on out for the entire episode, this monster figure of Squidward that he has formed into, his arms almost like in a T-Rex kind of position, his cheeks puffed out, I hope not his mouth filled with cement, Seemingly, he can only breathe through his nose. A very terrible situation to be had. A very horrific-sounding situation. One leaf out of the top of his head, and the bottom portion of this monster just completely uh, flat. So from then on out, he is only able to really waddle around. He reminds me of one of the power-ups that you can have in Kirby, where you just turn into a statue but you're not really able to move, or if you can, you can only move ever so slightly left or right. That's what it That's what it looks like here. But Squidward is waddling through jellyfish fields for, as he narrates, possibly for five days with no food, 
possibly no water, in the worst situation possible, before he finds himself at the Jellyfish Fields sign, which is the telltale notice of the entrance of Jellyfish Fields. So he has finally made it to some sort of known landmark before it dawns on him, wait, I'm in Jellyfish Fields? He was at least happy of his situation over the fact that he was away from SpongeBob and Patrick before coming across that sign. And as usual, Squidward's powers cease to amaze. SpongeBob and Patrick arrive on set and find themselves in front of this creature. They don't notice it to be Squidward. And for the rest of the episode, SpongeBob and Patrick actually do not find out that this creature is Squidward. They come across it. It looks like an endangered species, which to, I guess, Patrick's idea of an in... I don't know if he thought endangered meant something just about danger. So when he heard SpongeBob call it an endangered species, he started screaming at it like, get on out of here! And, uh... Yeah, I'm sure there are some creatures out there that Patrick's whole attempt totally justified. There are plenty of animals, endangered or not, that if I came across them in the wild, that would absolutely be what I try to yell at them for. I mean, there are others that I would simply either run or go into a fetal position, but uh, certain ones, yeah. Yeah, get on out of here. Nobody wants to see you. But no, SpongeBob reassures him, no, no, no. It doesn't seem like he wants to harm us. It seems like... He's scared. He's lonely. We need to care for him, which is not out out of the realm of possibilities for these characters. This harkens back to Rockabye Bivalve and their maternal, paternal instincts of just wanting to take care of helpless creatures. So this completely falls in line for something that SpongeBob and Patrick would do. SpongeBob decides to bring this creature who they name Smelly due to the stench that comes off of this character. I love the little animation of Spongebob emptying his eyes that have welled up with tears due to the smell, just flushing it out of his pores. They bring Smelly home to the pineapple. Squidward is now in full danger mode, is in full horror mode, as his one situation that he wanted to avoid, being around Spongebob and Patrick, is now coming to fruition in the worst way possible. It's one thing to be a cement monster wandering around jellyfish fields, and it's another thing to be a cement monster now stuck in the clutches of these two characters, in their homes, no less, which now Squidward has a bed, which went from a queen-size bed to a stack of newspapers in the corner. He has his own water bowl, and I am impressed by Spongebob's ability to get a monogrammed water bowl or food bowl in time for a new pet at his home. Or he already has a bunch of those stashed for whatever names possible, just in case. That wouldn't also really surprise me at the same time. Patrick pulls out what I thought was called snail pood, but is actually snail food, F-U-D. I thought it was a P. But, you know, a little bit of the snail pood would uh, 
Wouldn't sound bad right about now. Oh, maybe a little bit of pud then. What a bloody surprise, mate. You got room for pud. <laughs> you love your pudding. All right, there's always a little bit of room for pud. The next step in acclimating a new pet to your home is, of course, introducing them to any existing pets that they may have to cohabitat with. So, of course, Gary gets brought in to inspect this new animal, Smelly, who once Gary sniffs at, immediately attacks and ravages Smelly's face and entire head, just engulfs Smelly with just a cat scratch attack, a snail scratch cat attack, whatever you want to call it. And as SpongeBob removes Gary from this situation, notices that Gary has never attacked anyone like that except Squidward. Which should connect the dots for SpongeBob and Patrick together, but they don't. They just accept that Gary cannot live with Smelly. Which means, guess what? Smelly gets to go home with Papa Patrick. And the horror gets worse, because I would rather live in the pineapple than in the dark depths of the rock. Which, luckily, this rock doesn't have an ego to take control of the story. The rock has certainly grown since another character has slept over in season one when it was simply a flat surface under this rock. Patrick has kept a little bit of the depth since then. Thankfully for Squidward, I don't think that cement uh, creature would have fit just under the rock as such. But living with Patrick is certainly not an ideal situation for Squidward. Having a ball just thrown at his face constantly before all of the sudden Squidward gets annoyed at this situation. You would think, yeah, having a ball thrown at your face, thrown at your face, thrown at your face would just have any creature eventually snap. And as he shows aggression towards Patrick, he immediately calls animal control. He doesn't even call SpongeBob to go, hey, yo. This creature is acting up. He just calls up animal control. And they are on their way sending in a helicopter, sending in a SWAT team for this animal. Which, I have to say, I know that Old Blue, Old No Name, has increased the population of blue jellyfish and jellyfish fields, but someone was busy in the SWAT team department because a lot of these guys look eerily similar with one another. There are a lot of twins or or half-brothers working at the SWAT force. They have increased tenfold in this uh, situation. Squidward is now surrounded as he tries to enter his home by the police. And as SpongeBob pleads to all of these characters that this is not what you think, this is not a dangerous animal, they remind him this is still a wild animal. And wild animals belong in the zoo, which this is one sentiment that I know that the story doesn't really have time to delve into. It's a story and it's trying to, you know, have its time of 11 to 12 minutes to get from point A to point B. But zoos are certainly a point of contention in our day and age. And I have no doubt that as time goes on, they will still certainly have their contentious bits and have detractors. But as far as my personal core beliefs of these 
kinds of establishments, zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries. If an animal needs the care of humans to survive, if it genuinely could not survive due to health reasons or for whatever other means can be explained, I do believe that there should be an open viewing experience for the public. Maybe a little bit of a fee to get in, but you should be able to then have an experience to view these animals to which otherwise you would not be able to see. And it's one of those kind of roundabout ways that then are helping out in that situation. Every bit of that is then still assisting the animals. The people caring for the animals are learning about them, learning to care for them. The money coming in from the zoo or for the aquarium is then going to pay those people, pay to care for these animals. And for the zoos or aquariums out there that house animals in small containers for little to no reason, who house animals that could otherwise live on their own in the wild, there are certainly places out there that you can point to and go, yep, this place isn't good. This place is not doing what's right for the animals. The animals should come first at all times. But for every place that you can point to and go, this place shouldn't exist, I'm sure you can find one that is doing a good job, a genuinely good job at caring for their animals, putting the animals first and foremost 100% of the time, and should exist, should be public, should have people be able to come in and see these animals while they're here, you know? Now, I know there are going to be people that regardless of any reason, there just shouldn't be any captivity whatsoever. I also understand that. I genuinely do. I love animals. That's what I hope I get across in all of that. I, I love animals, and if I see an animal that, hey, this animal is sick or injured and couldn't really have a viable life out in the wild... And therefore, there are those who have brought more of a life to that animal in an enclosure. If you can have a situation like that, then how could you be cross about that situation? I don't know. I know there are people out there, very circle of life, as if we're meddling in some way. Hey, if that animal couldn't survive out in the wild, then so be it. I know that mentality is out there, but... In some cases, we shouldn't be so cruel about the way we can help animals, or the way we try to help animals. The way that they help Smelly here is not ideal, which is kind of the entire reason I kind of brought all of that up, because you could look at the enclosure that Smelly has and is locked into, and even outside of the cave portion that Squidward is locked into at night, the outside area of that seems so small and the sign right above the cave unknown species that is such a degrading thing to have for this animal just locked away in this tunnel unknown species this little segment reminds me of the eventual ending of kevin smith's tusk which other than the movie itself, I have always loved the story on how the movie came to be as two friends talking about this hypothetical possible horror movie on a podcast then 
stay true to the story they come up with and actually write a screenplay based on that podcast. And the joke ending of that supposed movie in that podcast had this character who finds themselves very much like Squidward in a monstrous kind of suit that they cannot get out of, apparently. And instead of trying to get them out and back into society, the authorities simply take this new creature and bring them to an animal sanctuary where the end of the movie has this man walrus just living in an animal sanctuary with a hut and a little food bowl. And it's a bonkers ending. If you watch that movie and you have no idea of the podcast or the joke behind it, that's a bonkers ending. But as bonkers as it is years earlier, here's Squidward in a fairly similar situation, finding himself in a monstrous outfit that he can't get out of. And the authorities just go, well, Let's just throw this thing in the zoo in an unknown species tunnel that people just point and laugh at. But still, even through all of this trauma, all of this situation, Squidward is now without SpongeBob and Patrick. That is until later on that night where SpongeBob and Patrick break into the zoo so they can free Snelly and get him back home which I'm sure means Patrick's a rock. As SpongeBob scales down into the enclosure, I love the little line of Patrick almost whispering out loud, you're my hero, to SpongeBob scaling down the wall. It really feels like if you have ever played Splinter Cell Chaos Theory and you ever enjoyed the multiplayer of that video game, it is two spies, Special Agent Bob and Secret Agent Steve, breaking in and out of buildings with a lot of co-op teamwork like that where you are scaling walls and it feels like something just as a friend and I would be playing. My friend Alex, we would just say to each other, you're my hero. Or I would often imitate Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off when Ferris saves him from the pool and he just goes, Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. And, you know, we might goof off like that. And that just reminds me of those moments. It's crazy how a single episode of SpongeBob SquarePants can conjure up so many memories of the past that are completely unassociated to the episode at hand. Isn't that crazy? That's what I love about it. Anyway, as SpongeBob makes himself known to Smelly, Squidward is immediately back in a place of of trauma, freak out. Oh my goodness, here they are again. Everything gets worse with these guys around. As they free Smelly, the task force, the SWAT team, must have already known that they broke into the zoo. They must have tripped a silent alarm, or knowing these characters, Patrick probably set off the alarm purposely and then thought, oh, that's the worst song I've ever heard. Something along those lines. But here's the SWAT team, floodlight, right on Smelly and SpongeBob, but they book for it. They just grab Smelly and run. They run through this enclosure before they find a sewer hole on the ground. And there's a lot of sewer travel in this episode. They escape the SWAT team through the manhole cover and decide to throw Squidward right down this chute, right down into the sewer, banging off each of the walls like he's a pinball. And they find themselves in this 
dark sewer pipe. Once again, bringing these horror-feeling elements of the sewers. Now, I have no idea if they will find themselves near any sort of clownish figure in those sewers, but on the other side of that pipe, they find themselves in a jungle-like setting. You would think this is maybe deep in the kelp forest of some area, but it certainly looks a little alien, a little out of the ordinary, if you will. And as they come across a clearing in this jungle, we see other creatures who look very similar to how Squidward has been adorned with all of this cement and the leaf on the head. These creatures are essentially furry. They have fur on them. They have their arms in a very similar way to how Squidward has his little T-Rex arms at the ends. Instead of the tentacles coming out of the cement, it seems like they have just little little tentacles themselves. Instead of a leaf out of their head, it looks just like some sort of appendage. And they just genuinely look like Squidward's. They're terrifying. But immediately, you would think as they're going to attack this imposter, they embrace him. And SpongeBob and Patrick, very much like Baloo and Bagheera at the end of the Jungle Book when they allow Mowgli, when they push him to go to the human village, no, you have to go, and they set him off. And he's hesitant, but he finds that girl who invites him in. And then when he leaves, there's this longing moment of Baloo and Bagheera looking at him like, he's gone. That's it. That's our boy. And SpongeBob and Patrick, this is the last that we see of them. They have done their work. They have freed this creature from the clutches of the zoo and have gotten him back to his home, his rightful family. And of course, they came across some creatures that looked like Squidward. Of course. That's what you would expect. But as you may be fearing for Squidward, fear not, as these creatures brings him over to another place in the clearing where the one, the only, the iconic Kelpie G is present to bring some smooth jazz to his friends. Apparently, a daily occurrence of Kelpie G showing up to this forest to play jazz for these creatures. Now, I am not a musician by any stretch of the imagination. I can imagine playing for animals, playing for creatures, is something that is enjoyable. I see videos online where people will go to aquariums and play for the beluga whales or going to a farm and playing music for the cows, and they will all show up and enjoy the music. Birds will dance to music. Animals enjoy music the way we do. So it's just enjoyable to not only see these creatures have such an affection for jazz, but the fact that a guy like Kelpie G, who is apparently in the jazz world, possibly one of the biggest names up there, spending his time coming to this clearing every single day to play some jazz for these creatures. What a guy. But of course, right when things have to go well for Squidward, now he finds himself in a place where even though these creatures are monsters in some way and could be dangerous, they have accepted him 
And now he gets to live a life where every single day he gets to enjoy Kelpie G jazz right in front of him live. Doesn't have to be on television anymore. And of course, right as he finds himself bobbing with the crew, right as he finds himself bobbing with the music, the cement cracks and breaks around him, revealing himself to the monsters around him as just Squidward. Now, there wasn't a moment of danger. I wish there was. I wish the creatures showed some genuine aggression or they changed up a little bit. Just like, and I know they couldn't reference this at the time, but if you have ever seen the Land of the Lost movie, the usage of the Sleestack, which are these reptilian monster characters that were created for the original TV series, and they're just these suits that guys would wear, and they really didn't have any movement of the face on them. They were just slow-moving creatures that looked very terrifying on their own, but in the movie version of Land of the Lost, they took these Sleestack, and when they were approaching the characters closer, they actually had their jaws, like, unhinge to showcase these massive amounts of teeth, adding on a horror element to these otherwise, you know, maybe over time not as terrifying creatures. But I wish that there was some element added to these monsters right before the credits to show some danger for Squidward. Because even though he shows concern, like, oh boy, my cover is blown, I don't know if he's going to be in immediate danger. I mean, Kelpie G is right there, a fellow squid probably wouldn't let him get hurt by these creatures, but who knows? I would love to have seen how else these creatures can interact, but either way, this was an episode designed to throw Squidward through the ringer as a creature to show him what it's like to be treated essentially like an animal, to have no control over who your owner is, what home you get brought to. Within a single day, you can find yourself in two different homes. Then in a zoo, being busted out, being thrown back to the wild. Being an animal is tough sometimes. It's not easy. I wouldn't know from experience or anything, but I can know from Squidward's experience here. It kind of sucks. And I really wouldn't want to find myself in a similar situation. As much as I empathize with Squidward, in his feelings in certain areas of his day. I certainly do not uh, want to deal in the same situations as uh, being mistaken as an animal, being thrown in captivity. And I'm sure there are some of you out there going, uh, yeah, you said you liked aquariums and zoos at some point, so isn't that hypocritical? No, not really. Because if an animal can legitimately be on its own, and there are no educational purposes whatsoever, then there should be no reason that it's in captivity. If the animal cannot be on its own for whatever medical reasons, for whatever other reasons, rehabilitation, otherwise, then yeah, have them be an open attraction in a well-regulated environment. And in most cases, in some of the zoos I've seen, I don't know if it's the state or just the general nation at hand, but yeah, some regulations are, are not up to snuff in the way that they should be. I know 
if you watch any of the Netflix Tiger King stuff, there are a lot of zoos featured on there that I certainly wouldn't support. You would never see me caught for one second in one of those places. And honestly, the Bikini Bottom Zoo may fall into that category. I can't say that their general care thus far that we have seen has been up to snuff as what I would say is acceptable, or I don't think by anyone's means, even if you love all zoos. I mean, come on, look at the way that Squidward was held in this episode, just in a tunnel like that, not even allowed out to the outer enclosure, just stuck behind a cage. At least their star attraction, Clam Moo, has a pretty massive enclosure that she can roam around in, seemingly at will and not locked away in a tunnel. Clamu, of course, a riff on the popular killer whale show Shamu at SeaWorld, another place you really wouldn't catch me hanging around at. But regardless of Bikini Bottom Zoo's practices, we don't really have to hang out there for very long, as we have only had two episodes at that location They may have their reasons for the way they handled Smelly in their care for the short time that they had them. But of course, now Smelly is back in the wild. Squidward now stuck in this situation, and that is the thing. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for coming aboard on this episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Your time means the world to me. I love each and every one of you, and thank you for spending some of your time to talk about SpongeBob with me. If you would like to write into the show, if you have anything you'd like me to read out on the air, if you have any questions or comments, you can write in at spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to follow the captain on social media, the two most active platforms that you can find me at are on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBobPodcast. Pretty straightforward on that one. You can also Follow Captain Eric on YouTube. Go to youtube.com slash at the Captain Eric or click on any of the links in the podcast description below for any of those socials. Subscribing to the YouTube channel is the best way to show your support. By joining the Ready Crew, you are committing yourself to hanging out with me at least once a week to talk about SpongeBob or with whatever else I want to share with you guys. There are about three videos being edited right now, uh, almost done and ready to be uploaded. That will be there soon. And if you would like to support the captain other than subscribing or following me on any form of social media, you can click on that Redbubble link in the podcast description below where you can find a bunch of pieces of art all hand-drawn by me that you can put on a multitude of pieces of material, stickers, hats, t-shirts, anything you want, anything that comes in from my projects, go directly back into my projects, and it's always appreciated. I cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate each and every one of you on the Ready Crew. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. I hope with whatever is going on in your life, whether or not you are stressed to the brink of breaking, I hope you are able to get through that. Just know that Through every dark sewer tunnel, there is some smooth jazz and light on the other side. Everything will be fine. I love you guys. Thank you for coming aboard. And 
Please stay safe, be kind to one another, and come aboard again to another episode of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. Ah, salutations, my children. Are you ready for your daily dose of smooth jazz? I know that I wasn't going to talk about John Carpenter's The Thing on this podcast, and I'm not, but I do want to address the sequel slash prequel to The Thing that came out in the year 2011, which, by the way, even though it's just called The Thing and you would think that, oh, it's just a reboot, it's actually not. It's a very smart reason to go back into that universe if you have... Ever watched John Carpenter's The Thing? At one point, the characters venture off to another outpost where the creature, the alien, The Thing, had already gone through and and ravaged through. And it's during this prequel in 2011 that you get to see the events play out of what happened in that outpost. But unfortunately, whoever was working on that movie or whoever decided to fund a sequel slash prequel to The Thing decided, you know what, let's not really spend much money on practical effects, which is one of the biggest elements that The Thing is known for. If you have ever seen that movie, you will know that some of its uh, scenes are unforgettable, and I just wanted to address the fact that you can't replace practical effects with CGI. There is not a level of CGI in this planet that has reached the effect that you can have with some practical effects. And the horror genre needs to learn fast that to go forwards, we probably should look backwards in some ways. But uh, that's all I have to say about that thing. Catch you next time. (laughs) 